0: When I say the word negotiate, as in salary, what comes up for you? I'll tell you what used to come up for me. Tension, conflict, fear, maybe a little aggression. I say used to because once I met my guest today, Margaret Neal, I no longer felt that way. Professor Margaret Neal is the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And she literally wrote the book on negotiating. In fact, it's called Getting More of What You Want, How the Secrets of Economics and Psychology Can Help You Negotiate Anything in Business and in Life. And you guys, this book is a must read for any human as far as I'm concerned, but especially those of us who struggle with the word negotiation. My hope is that she inspires you as much as she inspires me. Without further ado, may I present the brilliant and very wise Margaret Neal. I have to start by telling you a story. I was with my best friend and her husband in the kitchen. And we were talking about this trip my best friend and I are going to take to Rome. And her husband says to me, so how long are you going to go? And I said, well, I think Naomi can go for longer than me. I'm going to try and get away for a week. And he goes, what do you mean you're going to try and get away for a week? I said, well, I got to negotiate this with my husband. He's the one with the kids. And he said, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You want to go away for a week, and so you're going to start with seven days as your opening negotiation? And I said, well, yeah, because I don't want to offend him. And my friend's husband says, no, his being offended is part of his negotiation. You have to give him the opportunity to be offended. Start with two weeks, get to 10, and you might get a few extra days. So let me begin by asking you, is my friend's husband right? Is it okay for the other person to be outraged initially as part of their strategy? What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, actually, I was laughing, and (laughs) the reason I'm laughing is because certainly what you're experiencing is this notion of, should I ask for more than I expect to get? Because I expect that people will feel like they're in control, my husband will feel like he's in control, when he can get me to do what he wants. And then the reality is, of course, now you're misrepresenting yourself to your husband, someone who is arguably the most important person in your life. It feels a little duplicitous and manipulative, (laughs) right? Thank you. (laughs) Okay. However, depends on your relationship with your husband. <laughs> it's very good, <laughs> then, which is probably
0: why it didn't occur to me to like trick him into giving me more. Right. As, in, as, he, as if he can give me anything.
1: I do what I need to do, right? And so, but the question is, what, you know, were you feeling guilty about asking for more than a week? A hundred percent. And maybe what you're really trying to do is negotiate with yourself.
0: Oh, <laughs> God, that is right on the money. And that actually leads me to the first question I want to ask you. When I was reading your book, which is, it's a Bible, I feel like every single human person on planet Earth needs to read it, I realized that I make the biggest mistake that you write about, which is believing that negotiation is conflict. Mm-hmm.
1: And that is where the trouble begins, isn't it? It does. Because, you know, when we think, if we think of negotiation as conflict or negotiation, the way I talk about it now is negotiation as battle,
0: right? Mm-hmm. You think
1: about a battle. And the battle's characterized by, I'm gonna try to get stuff from you that you don't want me to have, and I'm gonna try to keep you from getting my stuff. And if that's how you think about negotiation, you're already on an uphill climb. And that reason, there's a couple of things that are happening simultaneously with that mindset. And the first one is that when I think of this as a battle, then that's the filter through which I'm gonna evaluate all your behavior. You're the other, you're the enemy. And so I'm gonna evaluate whatever you do in the worst possible way. Number two, when I think about battle, then what I'm thinking about is winning and losing. And all of a sudden now, it becomes a lot easier to think about, well, did I win or not, rather than thinking carefully about what it is I might have won. And third, even if my counterpart isn't thinking about a battle, if I come in all armored up, ready for a fight, they're likely to reciprocate. Because they can feel that energy. They can feel it. And so what happens then is, is that we have a conflict spiral, and now we have a real fight, when it's not really necessary.
0: Okay, so if negotiation isn't conflict,
1: it is instead? Well, let me suggest what negotiation is, is the opportunity for collaborative problem solving. But don't get too confused about when I say collaborative problem solving with how you might have thought about it in the past. Because for a lot of folks, collaborative problem solving, and I'm going to be a little hyperbolic here, is like, oh, win win, everybody gets together, we have kumbaya hugs, and there's rainbows and unicorns and everything all around us. (laughs) No. When I talk about collaborative problem solving, there are three criteria that are important. Number one, I, as the protagonist in this negotiation, am better off. Better off than my alternative, better off than my status quo better off than had I not negotiated. Now, that may seem like a low bar. I mean, why would anybody reasonably negotiate and be worse off? Except we all have. A hundred percent. We've all done (laughs) More often than I care to admit. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so the question first is, how do I make myself better off? Number two, because there is no command and control in negotiation. I cannot say to you, you will do this, right? Because in negotiation, the other side can always walk away. So in order to be effective as a negotiator, I need to understand my counterpart, understand their motives, their interests, their preferences, their problems. Because if I can't answer the question, why would my counterpart say yes to my proposal, then I'm not ready to negotiate. Mm. And third and most importantly, when I talk about collaborative problem solving, the proposals that I'm going to make to you, for example... I'm gonna frame those as solutions to problems that you have. That's a very different perspective because most people think about negotiation and they're thinking, what's in it for me? What do I want? I want more money, I want more resources, I want more of this, I want more of that. But they forget that it's interdependent and that I cannot get more of what I want unless you, my counterpart, are at least from your perspective kept whole or perhaps made better off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me too about the book is you talk about
0: how negotiation and getting good at negotiating—it's it's requires
1: discipline, and that's when I started to go,
0: "Oh God, she's so right." What did you mean by that?
1: Well, there's a lot of things in negotiation that we know we should be doing, but for most of us, what happens is we get caught up in the moment. So, for example, most of us don't really do a good job of preparing for the negotiation. Oh. That's absolutely right. Yeah, we don't know, for example, we haven't been clear about where our bottom line is. And when I talk about a bottom line, I'm talking about a real boundary where I am indifferent. If I'm at my bottom line, I should be willing to flip a coin. And if it lands heads, I say yes. and If it lands tails, I say no. That's how indifferent I should be. But for most of us, what happens when we negotiate is even if we have set a bottom line earlier, we completely throw that away if that bottom line stops us from getting a yes, because we privilege agreement Hmm. over the quality of the deal. Let me give you an example. Yeah, this is one of those where you need an example. Ever bought a house? Yes. Okay. Think about the first time that you were about to purchase your house, okay? First house ever. What'd you do? you did some financial analysis. You Mm -hmm. said to yourself, maybe you, your partner, whatever, your parents, whoever's helping you with this, you said, what's the most we can afford? You did the math, and now you come up with a number. And that number, the most you can afford, is your reservation price, okay? So now let's say you engage a realtor and you go looking, but you don't tell the realtor your reservation price, okay? That would be a really dumb idea to do that. And the reason it would be dumb is because your reservation price is arguably the most strategic piece of information in a negotiation because if I know your true reservation price, I know exactly how far I can push you, right? right. So, but what you say to your realtor something along the lines of, well, we'd like to look at houses in this range. And so, dutifully, your realtor shows you houses in that range. And you look, and you look, and you look. (laughs) And what happens is, is that you get increasingly more depressed. That's right. Because you're thinking to yourself, you know, these aren't even as spacious as my apartment, and then I'm going to pay all this money. This is crazy. And your realtor, being the consummate professional that he or she is, realizes your despondency and says, I'm sorry, we haven't found a place that works for you, but I do have some other places, but they're a little out of your range. Would you like to look at them? (laughs) What should you say at that moment? Let me think about it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you do say. (laughs) What you should say is, no, let's stay in the range. What you do say is yes. So you get shown those houses. And it turns out that you find the house. But it doesn't matter how well you negotiate, it still exceeds your reservation price. So, what should you do? This is the objective, should, walk away. I see, yeah. you're hesitating, but the answer is you should walk away, now. As a Bay Area homeowner, yes. this is a very fraught conversation. What do you do? You say yes. Yeah. You, what you do in that moment, and probably for a lot longer after that, is you think, well, you know that number I came up with, that reservation price, in the cold, cool calmness, before I fell into lust? That's wrong. Yep. Now all of a sudden I think, you know, we have kids, but they're gonna be smart, so they don't really need college funds. We can put that money into the house. We can add that to them number. And did you see that kitchen? We'll never have to go out to dinner again. We can throw all that money into the house. And vacations, who needs a vacation? What a beautiful <laughs> it's <so> place. True. <laughs> this is so true. You violate your reservation price yep. because you want a yes. Not because it's the right thing to do. But because you want, we so are willing to believe that the only definition of success in a negotiation is a yes. That's right.
0: I mean, the book that your book sort of, I don't want to disparage any other books on negotiating, but your book really dispelled, I think, the core central thesis of the negotiating
1: book of the old days, which was getting to yes. Mm -hmm. And I think getting to yes, by the way, is an awesome marketing title. Because (laughs) once you hear it, you never forget You can't unhear it. But I like getting more of what you want, personally. but. (laughs) But I think that one of the challenges is as a conceptual title, it leads people to believe that the only successful mechanism in a negotiation is an agreement. And sometimes the very best thing you can get is what you had before you started. So, you need to know where that line is that delineates a deal you could say yes to, to a deal you should say no to. Okay. So,
0: here's a psychology question a little bit. What role does our ego play in the should, should not situation? Yeah. So,
1: I think part of it is it it, it becomes, we become invested, right? We, it's like, we have to get a house. We cannot not get a house. We ignore the reality that, in fact, you live up to this point without having owning a house, right? That's right. You become obsessed with it. It becomes, as one of my, many of my colleagues would talk about in terms of research, an irrational escalation of commitment. I've started, <laughs> I've got to finish it. <laughs> That's right? amazing. Right? So I've got to get there. And we don't think about the implications. One of the things that I think is really important is like when you're looking for a house, or possibly with the exception of potential spousal candidates, <laughs> <laughs> never fall in love with one of anything. Because if you fall in love with one, you can't walk away. You can't negotiate. Right, you can't negotiate. So, you know, you can decide if you want to only fall in love of, with one of your potential spouses. But the issue of certainly houses, don't fall in love with it. In fact, one of the rules that, that my husband and I agreed to decades ago is that first we work to our expertise. Right? So when we have to negotiate something big, like, that's my job. And one of the rules around that was, if we were looking for a house, for example, you cannot, I don't care what your experience is, you cannot tell me that you've fallen in love with it. I love that. Because if you tell me you've fallen in love with that, you have completely removed any possibility of me to walk away. Because now you've said to me, Maggie, I'm in love with this. How can you walk away? What is my love worth to you? Don't put me in that position. that's amazing. That's amazing. But you should also ask... Well, okay, so you made a deal with your husband that you'll work to your expertise and you have to negotiate. What does he have to do? (laughs) My husband is a trained chef. (laughs) That arguably was the best negotiation outcome I have ever had. That's amazing. I have no idea where the kitchen is. I don't know what you do in a kitchen. I don't know where grocery stores are. (laughs) Not my job.
0: That's amazing. And And I think in my coaching practice, one of the greatest changes one can make inwardly Mm -hmm. as a communicator, just interpersonally, not even on a stage. Mm -hmm. But interpersonally is when you can learn to not take everything so damn personally. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like we're too porous. We let things affect us emotionally and become about our identity that really are inappropriate to, to tie to one's identity. And as I was reading your book, I thought, this is the same thing. I mean, a central tenet of negotiating well is sort of untangling your personhood, your identity from an outcome or a job or a salary or a house or whatever, because it removes your ability to negotiate well.
1: You've got to be able to walk away. And if your identity is tied up in getting a yes, you have lost the capacity to negotiate. It now becomes a hostage situation. Absolutely has become a hostage situation. The other thing I thought was
0: really important for people listening to this is – the importance of labeling things as option A, option B, option C, instead of it's either yes or no. I thought that was very powerful because that's another way to remove that emotional connection to it. I want to ask you about gender for a minute. You knew this was coming. (laughs) Of course. You knew this was coming. And if I'm not mistaken, the ratio of women that negotiate salaries was 7%, I want to say, wasn't it?
1: Well, what you're referring to is a study that Linda Babcock did, which was really what motivated her to write a book called Women Don't Ask, Negotiation, Gender Divide. And what she found was is that she asked a group of Carnegie Mellon MBA students, male and female, when you got your job offer, did you attempt to negotiate the details of your employment contract? And 57% of the men said they did, and 7% of the women said they did. And... What she also found, which was, I think, pretty impressive, was that of the people who initiated the negotiation, there was no difference by gender and success, that on average, they all got an increase of over 7% in their starting salaries. And that 7%, thanks to compound mm-hmm. interest,
0: becomes really freaking massive. Well, once if, you, you- if
1: you think about this... Let me just give you a little, a little thought experiment. So we're gonna use round numbers because it's easy to do math in your head with the round numbers. So let's say that, that you and a colleague of yours who's exactly like you except a different person, right? So you know, you're person A, they're person B. And you have exactly the same qualifications and you get hired by the same company. And the company offers you $100,000 a year, okay, as your starting salary. Let's say that you think, wow, $100,000, I'll just say yes because I don't want to negotiate because somebody might think I'm greedy or demanding or not nice, Now they might. this is battle mentality is kind of uncomfortable, especially with someone whom I might work with, so I'm just gonna say yes. Your counterpart, person B, actually negotiates. And let's say they just get a 7% increase. So they start out at 107, you start out at 100. We're gonna make two heroic assumptions so we can keep this going. Mm-hmm. Number one is you and they work at the same company until retirement age, let's just say 65. Let's say right now you're 30. Retirement age is 35 years away. So for the next 35 years, you and person B work together, do the same job, and every year, the company gives you the same raise, okay? So they're, so the company is completely blameless. They treat you identically. They gave you the $100,000 that you agreed to. They gave person B the 107. 35 years come and go. Your colleague, person B, decides time to retire. 65, they're retiring. The question I would ask you to think about is, how many more years will you have to work in order to be as wealthy from your compensation from the company as person B is when person B retires at 65? A lot of years. Turns out that it's more than eight. So the only difference between you and person B was that 35 years ago, they negotiated and you didn't. So, yes, negotiation can be uncomfortable, but is it worth eight years of your life? It certainly isn't. And it actually,
0: when you talk about the gender issue in the book, you say it could be because of two, you know the disparity between men and women and what they earn could be because of systemic sexism, yep. conscious or unconscious, or it could be because of an unwillingness on the part of women to negotiate their well, it's, salaries. It's actually
1: more than that, too, but it's unwillingness coupled with... Women, on average, have lower expectations of what they deserve than men do. Yeah,
0: and and that when I read that and the expectations issue is huge, yeah. which I want to talk about in a second. But I remember when I was negotiating my salary many. This was twenty years ago. When I concluded the negotiation, and I had heard from the person who was interviewing me because I was negotiating with HR, he said to me, "You know, you're causing a lot of heartburn on the team because." And I didn't, I, I didn't think I was asking for that much anyway. But I said. Okay, I'm very happy at my current job. If it's that big of a thing, let's just walk away. No hard feelings. No, 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 no. And so the HR person came back to me and she said, you're the only woman who's negotiated with me in my entire time at this company. Mm-hmm. And I thought what that made me realize is that this is an education problem as much as it is a systemic you know, sexism or patriarchy. It's its all of it. But w- as women, I've got to have the discipline to negotiate. I've got to have the imagination to do the planning to figure out what my goals are and expectations, which leads me to my next question. I'm actually negotiating something which shall remain nameless right now. And I was writing down my goals mm-hmm. because... That's what Maggie would do. W W M D. Maggie would write down her goals and the goals of the other person. And as I was writing down my goals, the altruistic goals, easy. Mm-hmm. Had them all down. I want to help. I wanna do this. I wanna mm-hmm. teach. When I came down to the material goals, I could feel myself cramping up. I, I felt this reluctance to own mm-hmm. what I wanted financially out of that arrangement. What do you make of that?
1: Well, welcome to the club. Right. <laughs> I mean part of the issue Yeah, part of the issue here is is that Women's roles in society, our role is to make people feel good. And so we don't true. make people feel good when we're asking for more resources, right? So what happens is we and they get uncomfortable because this is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make people feel good and now I'm asking you, I'm gonna make you uncomfortable. I'm gonna make you know, give you heartburn, I mean, whatever your HR person. It's like, because it's so much easier just to say yes. And because we have low expectations, plus we're supposed to make people feel good, why bother? That's right. And you couple that with the backlash. Because if I do negotiate, then I can often be subject to people thinking that I'm greedy and demanding. That's right. When in fact, if you took exactly my words, like let's say I negotiate for my compensation package, and then you put those exact words in the exact person, but it's in a male body, they're not going to get the backlash. No. And that's proven with research. This is not opinion. This this is is abundance. There's a ton of empirical research.
0: So what do you say to a woman? Let's say there's like a 28-year-old woman who's listening to this, who's coming up in her career, but she knows that that's the reality. What advice do you have to encourage us to push past it?
1: Collaborative problem solving. I'm going to get the biggest pushback as a female from asking about a single issue, usually money. That's where you know the, you kind of get the big, you are being greedy and demanding. But if I basically do a couple of things, one is I need to package, not ask for a single issue, but package my request as a set of resources. So think about this. With few exceptions, like maybe if I were negotiating for a job right now, I'd be probably be for my last job, not my next job, right? Because I'm at the sort of the end of my career where I'm gonna actually be paid to do stuff. But what is important is for most people, you're still going through the process. You have many jobs ahead of you. So the question is not, you know, what can I do for this moment and this dollars right now? but What are the resources that I need in order to do my next job, to be prepared for my next job, to be prepared for that next promotion, that next opportunity? Mm. So I'm looking for a package of resources. If I ask for a package rather than a single issue like dollars, first, it's a lot easier for me to characterize that as problem solving. You see, because I'm going to pitch my request for these resources, one of which is compensation, as a solution to the problems that my counterpart has so for example when i was hired here at stanford mm-hmm. when i was negotiating with the dean about my compensation package he wanted to talk about how much money did i want right mm-hmm. when, oh, here's like here's the salary we'd like to give you my response was let's talk about the package because the reason that you want me here is because of the resources and the skills that i bring to the table but i can't do this stuff without resources i need lab space, I need support for doctoral students, I need, you know, and so I talked about all the things because when I would interviewed here, people were quite open about the problems they, and by definition, the dean was facing in trying to move Stanford in the direction that everybody wanted it to go. Mm -hmm. So I used their words and I used their problems and said, here are the things that I can do to help you mitigate those problems. Here are the resources I need. No, you see, I'm not being greedy, I'm not being demanding, I'm not being not nice. You see, how can you how, you, how, how you can you possibly think that? of somebody as being greedy, demanding, and That's not right. nice That's when right. they're helping you solve your problems? And I think,
0: especially for a lot of women I know, where their minds go is money and flexible work time, mm-hmm. money and time with the family. And both of those things could possibly reinforce unfortunate predispositions against women. Oh, you're not here seriously because you're too busy being a mom or you're a greedy, you know, pushy woman. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is don't be so small minded. Think in terms of their problem, what resources you need to be successful in that role so that you can easily get promoted and make even more money down the line. Yes.
1: And have more control of your schedule. Yes. <laughs> Just like we, I mean, it, the truth is men and women want more control of their schedule. That's right. Uh, but a lot of women, especially those who have family responsibilities, you know, are saying, I need this, you know, in order to be able to manage this process. And the reality is organizations need women. And so they should be willing to do this, but sometimes they're short-sighted. And so you need to sort of think about the broader issues. So I need some resources. I need this. I need that to do, not for me, but for the organization.
0: Love it. So... I read this awesome quote the other day. It's actually, it's an Albert Einstein quote I'd never heard before. Listen to this. In teaching history, there should be extensive discussion of personalities who benefited mankind through independence and judgment. And I love that quote, but I like less of in a, in a historical context, but present moment. And I look at women like you who are shaping the way we see things in business culture or culture in general. And I'm always kind of amazed when I, you know, I hear you speak and I've seen you speak. You're such a dynamic speaker. You're such a great teacher. And you're thinking about things from such a different context. How are you able to be in that independent Maggie Neal, I do this is my life and this is my life's work and I do it? unapologetically. Like, where did that come from? Did you claim it as a child? Was it given to you?
1: I grew up in South Louisiana, and I tried to go along to get along. Your listeners can't possibly know this, but I am like six foot tall. I'm blonde. (laughs) I am a presence. And I grew up in South Louisiana, where female meant small, diminutive, and not me. And so I tried to just blend. And being a six foot one blonde woman in South Louisiana, there was no way I could blend. But I tried. And eventually I discovered that it wasn't working. And so I said, you know, I need to actually do something else. I have to actually, I need to make a statement. And part of that statement was, because I had been going along to get along, and I had been told all my life, you know, Basically, put your light under a rock, put it under a bushel, like don't, you know, women weren't supposed to be smart in math, women weren't supposed to be doing this, women weren't, you know, blah, blah, blah. Women were supposed to get married. My dad wanted me to go to college so I'd find a better quality of man to marry, right? And I remember his telling me (laughs) as I got my PhD, you know, you're not going to find a man. (laughs) Oh, in that case, let me just throw my PhD <laughs> yeah, away. Just, I had no idea. Yeah, he, just, he was, was like, okay, fine. He was wrong. I actually did find a man. Uh, <laughs> who cooks, for God's sake. Who sakes. cooks, yes. But what happened is, is that I realized that all of the things that I had sort of incorporated going through high school and in my early college really weren't working. And so I had to find some other way to basically be in the world. And part of that was through my studies, because Mm. what I realized is that I had been conflict avoidant for most of my young life. That is amazing to hear, actually. Yeah, well, what happened was, is I said, you know what, let me study this and see if there's a better way. And so I began studying conflict. My early studies in conflict were kind of weird because they were like, I was actually a, an undergraduate and a master's degree in pharmacy, and so I studied drugs of abuse and how people self-medicated. That was my kind of version of conflict. And then I discovered psychology, and I went, oh, my God, let's just go over here and study this stuff. And so I studied conflict, and eventually that morphed into, with my doctoral advisor, studies of negotiation. You know, and that's what started it back in, in the late 70s.
0: You know, this is an interesting echo. I remember I worked with a scientist many, many years ago who's gay. And I asked her a similar kind of question. And she said, "Her because she didn't blend in mm-hmm. from a very young age, she came to a similar decision point where she said, well, what I've been doing isn't working. And it was almost like it gave her permission to just do what whatever, she just wanted to do her. Mm -hmm. And because of that, she went so much further in the sciences than women typically ever went, because she just totally unshackled herself from the rules, Mm -hmm. which I think is just an interesting echo. There is a blessing to being on the fringe sometimes, right? Well, there
1: is. And I think the notion of unshackling yourself from the rules, one of the things that negotiation has taught me is that you got to check to see if the rules are really the rules, because mostly they're so not. True. God, it's so how often do people say, "Well, this is what the rules are," and you're going, "Well, let's talk about that. What does that really mean? And how does that apply in this situation?" And all of a sudden, the rules are no longer these sacrosanct things that are un- immobile and, and sort of unmovable. They actually become fluid, because quite frankly, humans make rules and unless it's a state of nature gravity things like that yeah then we can unmake those rules That's right. And I think one of the greatest things
0: we can do as humans is to learn how to gently probe those Mm -hmm. rule questions. I think it's applicable across any dynamic, any power dynamic is understanding how to gently probe the edges of the rules. And that's what I love about your approach to negotiation. It's so, it allows everybody to save face. Nobody feels attacked. Nobody feels like they're getting put over on. Okay. So last question. Your book is full of so many incredible pieces of information. I think we could have spent five hours picking it apart. But if you had to say, whoever's listening to this, if you remember one thing to make you a better negotiator, what advice would you give?
1: It's going to turn out to be really simple. If you don't ask for what you want, how will anybody know what it is you want? And if you don't ask for what you want, who will? Amen. I can't think of a better way to close in on that. Thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you.
0: Oh, you guys, I could have talked all day. And while we didn't get to go very deep into the book, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I, I tell everyone I know about this. I mean, listen to these chapters. When should you negotiate? How do you know what a good deal is? At what point do you walk away? What should you know or try to discover about your counterpart? When should you make the first offer? I mean, it goes on and on. This is like a Bible. So if you're on the fence... Your communication coach really thinks you need this book. (laughs) And if you ever get the chance to see Maggie in person, she's just an electric public speaker, workshop runner. She's just amazing. Um, And if you're ever looking for somebody high voltage to hire, she's just, she's one of my favorite people. In the newsletter this week, I will send links to the book, links to a couple of really great YouTube clips with tidbits that Professor Margaret Neal offers. For anyone hoping to get more polished with their negotiation, highly recommend. And as we said during the interview, negotiation and getting good at it requires discipline. So here's to being disciplined. Here's to asking for what we want. And here's to doing that in a way that is collaborative and then ultimately solves problems. Shine on you crazy diamonds. We'll see you next time.